Okay, yes, we're continuing our series then in uh, the Gospel according to John, and the title is The Tide Turns. What I'm referring to there is concerning the ministry of Jesus. The high tide of his ministry was when thousands of people flocked him and thronged him, and uh, thousands went out to the desert to hear him, and uh, he was so popular, many were being healed. But more and more, Jesus began to share where he was from, why he had come. And more and more, people began to turn away from him. Today, we're going to see that uh, many people didn't like that message. They turned away from him and walked no longer with him. Many of the crowds also just stopped following him. The Jewish leaders hated him more and more and plotted to kill him. The tide has turned. And uh, yet this is important for us because, you know, the Bible says there will be an apostasy in the end days. There will be a lot of people who will turn away from the faith. And uh, Paul said that they, the days will come when they will, will not endure sound doctrine. And I believe we're living in those days. I believe we're there now. So it's good to see the way that Jesus was unfazed by that. We saw right from the beginning that he knew what was in man. He knew what was in their hearts. He was never kind of persuaded or, 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 or phased by those things. Why? Because his delight was in doing the Father's will. That's the only thing that motivated him. He wanted to do the Father's will. That was his meat, he said. He fed upon that. And uh, so that's going to encourage us as well today to just keep our eye on the goal, our eye on the calling, and just to keep being faithful regardless. You know, the Paul says, uh, preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's unpopular. Just keep going, being faithful, having done all, stand. Amen? Amen. That's the message. So we're going to look at that. And uh, first of all, we just go back a little bit. Do you remember in chapter 5, that records how Jesus was rejected in Judea. The climax of that was when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda and uh, the leaders opposed him because he did that on the Sabbath day and Jesus said, well, I've just been working with my father. My father works and I work. We work together. And then because he called uh, God his father, they were even more angry because it made him equal with God and they wanted to kill him. And so he had to get out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, went to Galilee, and there again he was very popular. The, we saw that coming to a climax with the, the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness. But we see also that the crowd had their own agenda for him. They wanted to take him and make him their king. Why? Because they wanted him to deliver them from the Romans. They wanted him to be their, their deliverer. But he didn't do that. He came for another purpose, a greater purpose. We all need deliverance, not from a, a, you know, a, a political oppressor, but from the power of sin. And he came to die in our place, to set us free from the penalty and the power of sin. And he was focused on that goal, that what the Father had sent him to do. So he sent the crowds away. Then he, the, the Bible says he went on to the other side of the lake and they all came round there. We saw that last week and there was a big debate and discussion going on. And he told them, you're not seeking me for the right reason. You seek me because of the bread. You, you know, you were fed by the bread, but you need to seek me for the bread that endures for 
eternity. And so that's where we're going to pick it up today because that was a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. From immense popularity, the tide now turns and there is increasing opposition and hostility as we go through John's Gospel. Now what we're going to see in this passage is there are three groups that are brought into focus. First of all, the Jews, then a wide group of disciples, not the twelve, but much greater group than that, and then the twelve. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Okay, so we pick it up at John chapter 6, verses 41 to 46. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, and he has seen the Father. Okay, so these were Jews in the synagogue at Capernaum. Okay, we read that in verse 59. And now they're starting to oppose Jesus, starting to challenge him and debate with him. They didn't mind seeing the miracles or receiving the free bread, but they complained about his claims to have come from heaven because they'd always believed he was the son of both Mary and Joseph. Now, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem but he fled to Galilee. So he was brought up in that area. They saw him you know, being raised and brought up and they just assumed that that's where he came from, that Joseph was even his father. Six times though, in this immediate context, Jesus said he came down from heaven. Now we know what that means. That means that he was God. God manifest in the flesh. As John said right from the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God manifest in the flesh. And so they knew that. They knew that because He told them that. But they thought, no, this can't be because we saw him grow up as a little boy. And so there was also a problem because what they understood the Messiah, about the Messiah, was that when he came, he would come in the clouds to deliver them. Suddenly he would come. But this Jesus had grown up quietly amongst them. So how can he be the one? That's the way they were reasoning, you see. Jesus replied to that, only those whom the Father draws would come to him. Friends, if you're a believer, and I believe we all are here this, this morning, though I won't take that for granted, but most of us anyway. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's one reason for that, and it's this, that the Father has drawn you to himself. The Father has drawn me to, to himself. And, and the word draw there implies a level of resistance. It's not just come with me, 
It's not that at all. There's a a level of resistance, and against that resistance, the Father has drawn us. In fact, when you look at how that word is used elsewhere in the Bible, it can even mean dragged. For example, when when, uh, Jesus performed that miracle after the resurrection, they were fishing, you remember, the disciples, and they caught no fish, and Jesus told them to cast the nets on the other side, and then they caught all these fish, but there were so many that the, the, the net almost broke. And they had to drag it in. There was a resistance. The fish was still alive and pulling against it. And the weight of the thing, that's the meaning there. Another instance, Acts chapter 16 and verse 19 is when um, Paul and um, Silas were preaching at Philippi. And you remember there was um, a slave girl there that was working on behalf of those that uh, made these idols. And they were getting a lot of financial gain out of it. But... Paul cast the demon out of her and she was no longer lucrative for them. So they were incensed and they got Paul and Silas and the Bible says they dragged them. They didn't say come with us. (laughs) They wouldn't have come. They took them against their will and dragged them to the magistrates, to the authorities. But the drawing in both cases that I've just mentioned there was successful. There was resistance, but against the resistance... They were drawn. That's what happened to us, friends. There's great resistance in the unregenerate heart. Before we're born again, we're not inclined towards God, we're inclined against him. There's self-righteousness, for example. When you tell someone they are a sinner, they need to be saved, there's something that rises up, you know, I'm not a bad person, I've lived a good life, I help people when I can. This self-righteousness comes to the surface and people think they can, they can make it on their own. Or there's pride. Some people just feel that they don't need God. They say, it's okay for you, you need a crutch to lean on, I don't need it, I'm an independent person. I can stand alone. Or there's the love of sin. They want to remain in their sin. They don't want to come out of their sin into Christ. They want to stay where they are. Or there's the love of the world. There's even spiritual blindness. Some people, until, well, in fact, all of us, until our eyes are opened to the truth of the gospel and our need of Christ, we won't come. As Paul, Paul sums it up very well in Romans chapter 3. He says, there's none, none that seeks after God. No, not one. But when God's grace appears to us and and, and compels us and draws us to himself, it is a greater force than all these things that are resisting God. Amen? That's what happened. And Jesus said, no one can come to God unless the Father draws him. And in verse 45, we see how the Father draws. He said, unless you hear and learn from the Father. So the Father comes and brings this revelation, brings this understanding, and all of a sudden, we change our mind. That's what the word repentance means, by the way. To change your mind. You thought one thing, but now you realize I was wrong. And and God draws us. We learn from the Father. We're taught, Jesus said, by the Father. Now, the Bible does say that there's something on our side that can help that, and that is humility. The meek and the humble are the ones that are taught easily. In Psalm 25 and verse 9, we read something like this, that the humble he will guide into justice and the humble he will lead in his way. Jesus said in 
Matthew 11, verse 25. Father, I thank you that you revealed these things, not to the wise and the prudent, but to these babes, these disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary people, not, not the religious hierarchy that thought they would be first in line to understand the things of God. They, they didn't understand because they were too proud to be taught. But God taught the disciples, the humble disciples. They were drawn to him. Jesus goes on to say, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. This is our theme in this whole book. We're just going through this, seeing it over and over and over again. The gospel is so clear. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Then he said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now you look at that and, and, and we understand what this bread of life means. We understand now what it means. He says, if you believe in him, you have everlasting life. And then that last sentence, he says, this bread of life that I'm talking about is my flesh, my body which I will give for the life of the world. In other words, if you believe what Jesus did at the cross, that he did it for you, you will have everlasting life. The gospel is not difficult. You don't have to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or descend to the depths to bring him up. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have everlasting life. Amen. This is actually the first of seven I am titles of Christ recorded in John. We said that John is kind of built around the seven miracles or seven signs that John selected to present how Christ revealed his glory. But there are seven I am's and we're, we're looking at those one by one. Here's the first one. I am the bread of life. We've seen what that means. The bread of heaven that came down. If you feed upon Jesus by faith, you have everlasting life. You eat the bread of this world, you will die keep you going physically for a while, but eventually you will die. That would, that's not, you were created for something deeper and greater than that. He said, I am the light of the world. We're going to look at that. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And I am the true vine. We'll look at all of those, but we know that that statement, I am, is the name that God revealed himself. It's the God's personal name. I am that I am. The one who was and is and is to come. The one who always has been. Amen. And Jesus took that name on himself. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. So they quarreled amongst themselves. They had different views about him and what he was saying. But like Nicodemus and the woman at the world, they understood him literally, not figuratively. So you cannot understand God with human reason. You cannot. 
You know, like Nicodemus took what Jesus said literally when he said, you must be born again. How can a man be born again? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? You try to understand that with his human reason. You cannot understand God that way. The same with the woman at the well. You know, if you knew who it was that was asking you for water, you would ask him and he would give you living water. But you haven't got a bucket. How can you draw? Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us this well? They understood it literally instead of figuratively. And we need God's help to understand the word of God. And we're going to see that in a moment. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus repeated, repeated his claim with emphasis again and added that they needed to drink his blood also. So, so they understood it in a, in a literal sense of cannibalism. Do you know that when the Romans wanted to persecute the church in the early centuries, that's what they accused Christians of doing at the Lord's table. Cannibalism. They're eating the flesh and the blood of a person. Because unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, these things are hidden from you. That's why we need to always pray when we come to the Word of God. I don't think you can just understand it through intellect. The Holy Spirit's got to come and open our eyes and, and just begin to give us His life out of His Word. Amen? Okay, let's, let's move on. My flesh... He said, it's food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Now we've seen what that means. It means to believe in Jesus. They abide in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate uh, the manna, and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. You know, there's a lot of wonderful doctrines in this passage that, that Paul later on expounds and, and explains to us more fully. But he says, those who partake of Christ by faith, spiritually, are in a union with him. They abide in him and he and them. We're baptized into Christ. And that word baptize was a word that was used for dyeing garments. So you take a, a bucket of dye and you, you dip a garment in that dye. That's the meaning, to immerse fully. What happens? What happens to that garment? Well, it goes in as one thing, say a white garment, but it comes out as another thing. The color of the garment that's baptized into. Now, you can ask the question, is, is the garment in the dye or is the dye in the garment? Both are true. Are you in Christ or is Christ in you? Both are true. This is the wonder of, of our salvation is that when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are baptized into him, the Bible says. You are in him. When God sees you, he sees Christ. He, re, he, re, he relates to you as one now who is in Christ. You used to be in Adam, but now you're in Christ. Amen. And, 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 and what is true of him is now true of you. He, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. His righteousness is imputed to you and, and, and made your own by faith. Amen. But more than that, or in addition to that, I should say, he is in you. 
You are in him, but he is in you. So when you face the Christian life, you don't do it like other religions. Okay, what have I got to do today and try to find strength to do that? No, it's not a question of what are you going to do for God, but what is he going to do through you? As Paul says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Amen? Amen. So, so it's not a question of us trying to live for God, it's, it's letting God live through us by faith. That's the wonder of uh, this union with Christ. The bread that came down from heaven in the wilderness only fed God's people physically, only met a need of a certain part of their lives, but eventually they died. But all who partake of Christ will live forever. This is another wonderful doctrine. It's called uh, the doctrine of immortality. You know, some people believe that we're born immortal. We're not. Actually, we're not. That's why even, even Adam and Eve, when they, when they sinned, God said, uh, God sent them from the garden, lest they should partake of the tree of life and live forever. Amen. And, and so they would, have, they would have remained forever in that state of sin. And so God prevented that. God didn't want that. So he sent them out until, until then, you know, he prophesied about the gospel of Jesus who would come. And the Bible says that when we, through the gospel, life and immortality have been brought to light. Now we understand about immortality. We are not immortal. But when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of immortality. We will live forever. Those who do not receive Christ will not live forever. They will perish, the Bible says. So it's, it's through... What Jesus is offering us is not only forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God, but everlasting life, which means both quality and quantity. It's not one or the other, it's both. It's his life forever. Amen. That's another doctrine. You could spend a whole subject on that, a whole message on that. So right up until this point even, even though the, 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 the Jews were becoming so hostile and so against Jesus, he's still reaching out to them with the gospel, offering them himself, offering them the bread of life, offering them eternal life, offering them to raise them up at the last day. But then we come to this, this larger group of disciples. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, if you've got the King James Version, it says, who can hear it? The, the word there really means, basically, who's going to listen to that? Who's going to accept that? This is hard. You know, who in, who's going to actually listen to that and, and receive that and believe that? That's what it's saying. Some of his disciples found it hard to accept. It wasn't hard to understand, but hard to accept or listen to. That's the meaning there. Jesus was saying, you know, uh, I've come down from heaven. God manifests in the flesh. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which means to feed upon me. They were saying, well, who's going to listen to that sort of thing? That's what they were saying. His saying was not hard. Their hearts were hard. It's not what they didn't understand that was hard, but what they did understand. It's quite interesting, isn't it? A lot of people want to know things that the Bible doesn't give an explanation for, but they still want to know. I think it was, I forget who it was, but somebody said, I'm not 
concerned about the things that the Bible doesn't explain, but it's the things that the Bible does explain. The things the Bible does make clear, they're the things that challenge us. Amen? Are presented to us. Okay. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So he's saying if they found it hard to understand the meaning of eating and drinking his flesh and blood, that is his death, how would they understand his resurrection and ascension? In fact, in this passage, we've got a beautiful illustration of what I'm trying to say here is that apart from the spirit of God, we would never understand the things of God. There are four things there, four doctrines that are hard to understand or accept with the, with the, with the natural mind. The incarnation, what we call the incarnation, that God is, Jesus is God, the Son manifest in the flesh. That God came and was planted as the Logos, the seed of the Logos in the womb of Mary, developed there as the God-man, fully God and fully man. How can you explain that biologically? You can't. Don't try. <laughs> but it's the spirit that gives life. If you try to understand it with your, your natural mind, you reject it. That's what a lot of people do. They argue it from the natural reasoning and they make their natural mind the pinnacle of all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. <laughs> Another doctrine, of course, is that the one we've just been sharing, that, that Jesus would give his life for the world and that believing in him, we could be forgiven of all our sins and have eternal life. You know, Christianity is the only religion that operates by grace. That's why a lot of people can't understand it. In fact, who would have thought of it? Who would have thought this up? This is by revelation that we understand this. It's by grace. It's not, it's got nothing to do with what you do. Amen. It's everything to do with what he's done. Every other religion, if you do this, God will do that. And so there's, there's this kind of, you know, doing deals with God. But in, in, in the grace of God, it's all by grace. It's all because of what he's done for us. And we need a revelation of that. We need the Holy... Many of us, even, even in the Christian faith, we, we were relating to God on this basis of, you know, what's, what's fair and what's, what I deserve and what I don't deserve and so on. And we had to put all that aside and realize that it's by grace, by what Jesus has done, that God relates to us. And another doctrine is that Jesus ascended into heaven. He rose from the dead. Having been in the grave for three days, he rose from the dead and he ascended physically before their eyes they saw him going up think about that until he disappeared you can't accept that with the natural mind it doesn't work scientifically in every other way you look at it it just is not possible but by faith we understand amen and then the fact that we too will be raised again we too will be raised again saints that have died 
hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. Their bodies have disintegrated to dust and ashes. You think, how can they be raised again with a body? Well, they will be. As Paul said to, I forget what it was, one of the kings, is it Agrippa? Why should it be thought impossible that God would raise the dead? You know, scientists can actually recreate a whole body from one cell because the full DNA of that body is in that one cell. Well, if, if scientists can do that, why should it be thought impossible that God could raise the dead? But people reason with their minds. But it's the spirit that gives us understanding. Amen? Amen. Faith is tested when the true gospel is made clear because we can only understand it by the spirit. And he said this, but there are some of you who do not believe. For this is, remember, he's talking to disciples now. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Note that. Talking about Judas. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. The tide has turned. Many of his disciples, like Judas, were only attached to him in an external way. They professed to be his disciples, but didn't possess real faith in who he was and why he had come. They followed him halfway around the Lake of Galilee. You remember that? When they knew he was on the other side, they went all the way around to get to the other side to see him, but for the wrong reason. Because he fed them or because he did a miracle. From that saying, many of his followers went away from him. They went back to their old way of life, their former way of thinking and living. What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. They were on a different page. They had a different agenda for Jesus. He'd come to do his Father's will and give them what they really needed. Forgiveness, righteousness and eternal life. Were they really his disciples? No, we've just read. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. That, that's what he says in chapter 8. In fact, we just read in verse 64, they were unbelievers. They did not really believe in him. They were following him for the wrong reason. Now, here's, a, here's something. You think about this. If Jesus discouraged people from following him for material things, don't follow me just because I fed you, why do others encourage people to do so? Why is that a major part of the message, the bait they use to try to get people to come to God. If, if you come to Jesus, he will bless you financially, he will, you will prosper, you will have all these material things and blessings. Why do they do that when Jesus discouraged people from following him for that? I think that's a good question. Okay, then we come to the 12 as we finish up this morning. Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? In fact, if you look at that in the Greek, it says, you're not also going away, are you? That's what he says. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, whatever you think of Peter, (laughs) Peter gets a blasting from a lot of preachers because he often put his foot in it. But what you see with Peter is what you get. He said what he meant. And what he says here is this, we, we follow you because of what you teach us, it's truth, and because we've come to know who you are. Do you remember when, was it Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Peter spoke on behalf of the 12 that there was no one else they could go to. No one else could give eternal life. Only he is the life giver. This is received by believing in him, the son of God. We have come to believe. Now the words we here are emphatic in contrast with those who deserted him. Because Jesus said, you're not going to go away also, are you? No, we, we, he said, know who you are. You have the words of eternal life. And we know who you are. The Christ, the Son of the living God. That phrase, we have believed and known, indicates the settled nature of their faith. A final conviction. Faith is a journey, especially in its initial stages, until it becomes rested or settled in Jesus. We have doubts, we have voices, we have things to weigh up and to consider and to work through in our understanding. But there comes a time when we settle in our faith and rest in it. And regardless of what is happening around us, what others do and don't do, and what, uh, you know, what is happening in the world and in our circumstances, we know whom we believe and we are persuaded that he is the one. And we've settled in that. This, this is what he's saying here. We've come to settle in our faith in you. Nothing's going to take us away from it. The miracles of Christ had attracted the others But his teaching repelled them. When he taught them who he was and why he came, they turned around and walked away from him. But it was the very opposite with the apostles. You have the words of eternal life. We've been feeding off your words. We know who you are, the Son of God. The natural person says seeing is believing. But the spiritual person believes in order to see. Like we said last week, you you know, creation... You don't believe on it because scientifically you can now prove it. No one can prove it scientifically. But by faith we understand that the words were made. And when you, when, when you believe it by faith because the word has said it, then all of a sudden other things come into support that faith. In other words, what I'm saying there is that our faith is not something that, um, you know, rather, let's put it this way, people do not believe because of reason, but their faith stands up to reason. In the end, it stands up to reason. It's not an unreasonable faith. Okay. Many reject truths such as creation, the deity of Christ, the trinity, the sovereignty of God, etc., because they want to understand them before they will believe them. And we will miss out on many things if that's our attitude. 
If God says it in His Word, believe it. And then you understand more once you put your faith in what the Word of God says. God's order is we believe and we are sure. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. See, Peter thought he spoke on behalf of the twelve. But Jesus knew what he said was not true of Judas. Judas was not a believer. That's very clear from the verses we read before. Some people say, oh, if you say you, you can't lose your salvation, they say, what about Judas? Judas was not a believer. It's very clear in this passage. He was described as a devil. No saint is called a devil, by the way. He was described as a devil by Jesus. He served the devil and his purposes. Judas proved that he too followed Jesus only for what he could get. We know that he was actually taking money out of the He was the treasurer. He was taking money out of the kitty. He sought him for what he could get, money and a place in the physical kingdom. He was like the crowds that thought that Jesus was going to deliver them from Rome and that he would have a, a good position. He'd get in the ground level and uh, be one of the, the, you know, the important people in the kingdom that Jesus would set up. When he saw that wasn't going to happen, then he betrayed Jesus. But, we're finished with this note. Here's a wonderful truth. Judas is another proof of the authenticity of the life and ministry of Jesus. Think about this. Here was a man Jesus described as a devil. He was in the closest possible touch with the life of Christ, both in public and in private. Okay, so he watched Jesus at close range. Publicly, you heard everything he said and taught. And privately, he saw every, the way he lived, the way he behaved, and so on. He would have seized on the slightest flaw in Jesus if it had been possible to find one. But it was not. You know, he was the one that betrayed him, and he could have said easily, well, I'm betraying him because I know a lot about him that you don't know. I know this, I know that. But what did he say? After his betrayal, his testimony was, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he went out and committed suicide. Jesus is the bread of life. God loves us so much that he gave us his only son who came as one of us. Still fully God but fully human as well. Lived amongst us a perfect spotless life and gave his life as a ransom for us that we might be forgiven, reconciled to God, and receive everlasting life. I don't know you all. I don't know those watching us online. If you've never received Jesus, do it now. It's not difficult. You can just say, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Son of God. You died in my place. I put my trust in you. Do it now as we pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for the Word of God, the living Word of God, that reveals to us your will, your son, and your salvation. And we thank you, Lord, for what we've heard this morning, that Jesus came and so freely laid down his life that we might be restored to you. I pray for anyone, Lord, today who's listening, who has never made their peace with, with you, who's never received the free gift of salvation through believing in Jesus, that today they will put their trust in him 
and have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Amen.